Hey everybody, it is episode 97 of the Running Rogue podcast. Steve and I are coming at you today. Steve is piping in via the interwebs from California. I'm here in a very Seattle-like Austin, Texas, <laughs> as we've been getting rain I'm and cold. San Diego, baby. Yeah, so we're, we're a study in contrast today, Steve. So we've got lots of good stuff to talk about today. First of all, we're bringing back on episode 16 and 39 guest Mallory Brooks, who is going to help us talk about Maffetone training and his Maffetone method, also called MAP, the MAF method for maximum aerobic function. Mallory is actually going through right now, experiencing a little test with his method herself as she's trying to improve improve her aerobic base and it's something we thought that you guys as listeners would find as interesting and we'll dive into that in a second mallory also happens to be jason brooks's wife who jason was on just a few episodes ago talking with us about trail training she's also our one of our rogue trail coaches and one of the race directors with jason for the spectrum series of trail races here in the austin area and just an all-around, all-around badass for sure. So we're excited to bring Mallory on again for her third appearance. And of course, we've got lots of fun intro topics, starting with a 50th anniversary celebration that we have to mention. For those track fans out there, you may or may not know that Bob Beeman, 50 years ago, jumped over 29 feet, the first human to long jump 29 feet. He did it in Mexico City in 1968, 50 years ago. That record has only been broken once now by Mike Powell. He did it 27 years after Beeman's jump. But that was basically, in some ways, the equivalent of a Kipchoge-like performance for long jump back in 1968. So give us a little bit, Steve, on what that jump meant you know, I would actually, you know, this is, it is what Kip, like what Kipchoge did. And, and, and I, in a lot of ways where you and I went, well, especially I went Google Gaga over Kipchoge's world record. It just doesn't have the panache or number quantification that the sub four minute mile did, or that the breaking 29 feet did 50 years ago for Bob Beeman when he did this. In fact, there's a term that's now gone into the Ameri- or at least English parlance called Beeman-esque, which you can you can search and see that it means that when something just happens that's completely outside of what anybody would ever expect. Um, this was broken even more, in, 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 even in a much more dramatic way in that it was broken in the Olympic Games when he broke this world record. Um, there's a lot of questions about how this record got broken whether the runways were not quite right in terms of the the, the level the 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 hardness because it was in Mexico City, um, there's definitely the altitude which has a big impact on can have some impact on what happens in terms of when the body jumps off the ground and is in air. There's a little bit less of uh, gravity going on. Blah blah blah. I'm not into the science of all that. Let's just say that this record was so amazing that it stood for. 27 years and only one other human being, the amazing Mike Powell, and the only one other person in the world has ever gone further than he Beeman went, and only only two men in the world have ever gone over 29 feet, which just puts it a level. When you think about the four-minute mile, the equivalency there, I mean, hundreds of people have gone under four minutes for the mile, you know? 
Um, and yet 50 years, 50 years after Beeman jumps over 29 feet, there's not a, only one other person in the world has ever done it. Um, and many people would look at Mike Powell and say Mike Powell um, was an absolute incredible freak of nature as an athlete, like a Michael Jordan, um, like a Usain Bolt, just particularly gifted and incredibly driven to meet get that world record. But one thing I want to say real quick is, is, is just so that people get a little perspective because they're probably like, why are these guys going off about a, a, a one long jump that happened 50 years ago? Well, basically he improved the world record at the time by 6.59%. So that would be the equivalent of someone in 2018 lowering the world record to 153.28 in the marathon right to lowering the world record in the marathon to 158 153.28 or lowering the 100 meter record to 8.95 so <laughs> people this is this was beyond the scope of amazing and something that um we feel as track fans should be brought to your attention on this, the 50th year, the 50th anniversary of that amazing jump. Yeah. And I would encourage people to Google it and find some images from that day in Mexico city. You'll find a lot of black and white ones, but just unbelievable shots of him midair that make you feel like it was a transcendental moment even if it's a static image. So really, really cool. So there you go. Congrats again to Bob Beeman <laughs> 50 years now later. So that's, that's what we'll open with a couple of other topics as we kind of navigate current events in track and field. We've had some, some new affiliations that we think are worth mentioning in the world of track and field, starting with that of, of Donovan Brazier, who is now training with the Oregon Project, has taken now Clayton Murphy as a training partner, as an 800-meter runner now joining that group. You know, people might remember that I predicted that Brazier might sniff at the American record this year in the outdoors and in the 800, and he hasn't even shown up on a track. We don't even know what the hell's been going on with him this year, except that now he is joining the Oregon Project. And it looks like he's going to be training under Pete Julian there. And so not directly under Salazar, but we know Salazar kind of advises and those two work together on the programming. But Pete Julian will have him in the mix now with Clayton Murphy, of course, Craig Ingalls and others in that. And Essential Wits, of course, at least training remotely with that group that are kind of in that 815 range. What do you think about this move for Brazier? Well, I think it just needed to happen. You know, number one, he lost um, the key coach that he had at A&M. Um, Alan Francique was uh, let go from there for, uh, uh, well, I'm not going to go into the reasons why, because it, it is what it is. But he lost his coach at A&M, and so it didn't make sense for him to stay there. He wasn't going to get the kind of resources. He didn't have the needs that he was going to – I don't think he was going to get the attention and the coaching that he needed. Um and so I think that the key thing for him is, number one, he needed to find an excellent coach in the eight. And number two, he needed to run with other people. I think he learned that in his time at a and I mean, I think this is an inspired move. I think it's going to be great for both of these two athletes. Both of them are going to benefit greatly. 
they're going to go into races a lot more calm, cool, and collected, in my opinion, because they're going to know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and they're not going to view each other, I don't think, in the same sort of manner in terms of competitors. And I think that will just raise the level for them. I think that we've got um, – I think we already have it. We know in these two athletes, we have two people who can contend for an Olympic gold medal. And I think this just makes it much more likely that we medal at the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. And perhaps we get the gold medal in the 2000 and and maybe we get two medals out of it with these guys. Um, These two guys training together, the way their styles are, their strength based versus speed based, the way these two things play out. Assuming that Pete Julian can get, these personalities to mesh and to get these, the training mod modifications adjusted correctly for those two. Um, I think it's great. The one thing I will warn everyone, I do think it may mean that Donovan doesn't necessarily come out of the box hot though, Chris, because I think there's going to be some aerobic work that's going to be happening that, um, that he is not as accustomed to doing that is sort of, what almost every most every other 800 meter runner has done, and and I don't think that Donovan has done as much of it because he came from a true speed based program. So I think there might be a little bit of transition, um, but hopefully he's gone out and doing this early enough this season, and that he's training at 100. percent So these two can make um, big waves this summer. I'm excited to see how this plays out for these two. What do you think, Chris? Well, I mean, I think. I agree the potential is there. I do worry that Brazier is going to be able to make the transition from the speed-based program that he comes from to this more aerobic-based programming. He's going to be potentially running more miles than ever. I mean, well, certainly running more miles than ever and probably doing longer workouts than ever. And so I, I wonder how he's going to handle that both physically and mentally as somebody who's obviously just a massive raw talent who's been relying primarily on that talent with a little bit of sharpening from his coach to, to make sure, you know, he's ready to roll that out when he needs to, but, but it's going to be a big transition adding miles, adding tougher work, trying to, to go from just having the raw talent show itself to also having, you know, the miles speak for themselves. So I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a big change. Sometimes it can also take a year, sometimes two years for people to see the real develop or to see the real benefits of that kind of transition. And does Brazier have the patience for that? Does he have the maturity for that? I just don't know. And so it raises questions for me. I mean, I think on paper, it looks like a good move, but I think in practice, We've got to see how this plays out for him before we're going to really know. Cause I think this could be a thing that either puts him in position to win Olympic gold, as you say, or it could push him out of the sport completely within a year and a half. You know, I, I get what you're saying, Chris, but I think that Donovan Brazier is such a unique talent that I think that it's going to actually take him to the next level. Um, truly. Um, so We'll see. And I do think that there are concerns there, but I also think he's in a system where he has every resource is going to be made available to him. And he's going to be able to, I think it's going to be, I I just think he's going to be a really good thing for him. Um, But I do understand where you're coming from in terms of that shift. But, you know, this is a guy who 
you know, by getting him there on campus and getting him into that system, I think he's going to benefit greatly. And um, again, I, I do think we might see a little bit of a different performance this year, but hell, we haven't seen it. We didn't see him this year anyway, because he was hurt. So did he get hurt from doing too much speed work? Did he get hurt because his coach was, was gone and wasn't there and he wasn't able to do the work that he needed to? There's a lot of question marks. We don't know the answers to about how he got injured in the first place. So um, I think we just give him a little time and see what happens. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I certainly hope it brings out the best in him and, and it should also help him tactically to be able to work with the likes of Salazar and Julian who are, you know, masters at it and have Sensor Wentz's influence who's a master tactician because we know that's one of Brazier's biggest weaknesses is his tactics. So if he can learn that and develop their, the aerobic system to go with his raw, massive speed talent, then, I mean, he could beat anyone in the world. And so I hope he can put all that together. It's going to be fun to watch him watch him try so we shall see but world watch out now second thing in terms of affiliations sydney mclaughlin who is a 400 hurdler went to the olympics as a high school athlete then just ran a year at kentucky and recently went pro had taken some time she hired an, an agency to help her that works also with other big athletes from other sports to take some time and figure out how to get the most out of an endorsement contract after she had announced turning pro and to, to the surprise of pretty much no one, she ended up at new balance, which is a brand she'd affiliated with herself with a little bit during her high school years before going to Kentucky when she ran the DMR with other new new balance athletes to get that indoor world record. And so, so here we go. Sid, the kid now with new balance, 400 hurdler, also amazing at 400 flat races. It's rumored or projected that she potentially signed, you know, a $1.5 million per year contract or more making her perhaps the highest paid U S track and field athlete out there what do you think of all of that well number one kudos to her on timing this right getting it set doing her homework not making a rash decision and um perhaps getting what is could it looks like is likely the highest paying gig of any american athlete or track and field athlete and you know what Honestly, this is a this is somebody who can make our. She does. She's worth every penny, Chris. She's stayed healthy. She's everyone likes her. She's incredibly competitive, but she still brings a lot of charm and elegance and grace to the track. And she's funny and fun. And I think that um, in a lot of ways, this is somebody who could help bring our sport to a much higher level in terms of viewership. Um, and in terms of people getting excited about our sport again, she has the ability to be maybe be a pre downfall Marion Jones in terms of people's ability to pay attention to her and to see where she's at. So I'm excited. This is a great move for her. Great that she went with a different company other than Nike. I've been accused evidently of being a Nike basher, which I'm not sure exactly where that comes from. I'm not really, I don't agree with all of Nike's processes what i don't like is that nike gets all the athletes so i'm really happy to see an athlete going to another 
company and helping our sport, another, another company that allows our sport to get more balance in terms of what's going on um, with market share on television and, and, and in the viewership of the American public. So awesome for New Balance, awesome for Sydney. And I'm still wondering if we're going to see her in Austin. I don't know if she changed coaches or not, but her coach is now the head coach at the University of Texas. So I don't know what that's going to stay or if that's not, but it should be interesting to see if she, if we see her around. I think she said she's moving on from her coach. I don't know what exactly that means. I don't think she's announced a new coach, but that is what the rumor mill is saying. Now, the 400 hurdles is not an event that typically has those iconic athletes. You mentioned Marion Jones, 100, 200 meters. You mentioned, or you might mention Usain Bolt on an international scale as having that kind of draw, 100, 200 meters. You know, the big U.S. sprinters that typically have the big names come from either 100, 200 meters or 400 meters flat races. Is is it going to be hard to pe- for people to connect to the 400 hurdles with her or does it matter? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that um, I think she's an athlete that could that's going to if, if she can get I guess a lot of that's going to be whether the press decides to pick her up. I don't think I think she's got enough enough charm and grace for every American to get behind her as a person. And I don't think I think the 400, the fact that it's not the most viewed 400 hurdles is not the most viewed. Uh, race, but there's an you know this, Chris. I know this because you and I talked about this at I think the 2012 was it 2012 Olympics trials where I remember you watching the 400 hurdles and going like, oh my god, this is one of the. Mo-. I mean, you already had an appreciation for, it, but seeing it live, you're like, that what a cool! It is one of the coolest events there is in track and field, and so I do think there's also a chance for maybe this particular event to actually grab a hold of people because they see it's more than just running. Um, and it's more it's going over hurdles and running so maybe that has the ability i don't know i i'm trying not to be a downer about that but sydney certainly has the charm and the star power to for everyone to be a fan of hers oh yeah i agree and you know me i love the hurdles but just a question i ask and we'll see how new balance plays it'll be interesting and we also don't know to what extent she's going to run 400 flat races versus 400 hurdle races cuz she's obviously got potential at both we will see uh, she could, she is, she's, she's, uh, uh, definitely an Olympian. She can make the Olympic team in the 400 flat as easily as she probably more. I mean, both those two events, she could make the Olympic team easily, but I think in the 400 hurdles is the one in which she's got the chance for the Olympic gold. And so hopefully she stays there. We will see, but good luck to Sydney McLaughlin. We will be rooting for you. And congrats to new balance for scoring that one. That's a big, big score. All right, so now a couple of sort of pre-New York marathon topics we got to quickly cover. First of all, and we'll have more to talk about in specifics about what's coming with our running rogue New York marathon coverage. But you and I are going to be in New York, and we we just got our media credentials for the pre-race press conferences with the American athletes on Friday. So we're going to be able to do some in-person info gathering ourselves before our preview. So we're going to be having a preview podcast, obviously that will come out for New York. And then we're in discussions on doing a live call for New York while we're there. And so we'll have more information about 
where you can get all your New York, New York coverage coming from us and when to expect it on next week's podcast, episode 98. But, but, but some definitely some exciting, exciting stuff coming there, which has us uh, a little bit giddy, you could say. Right, Steve? Just in time for our 100th episode. <laughs> right. And Even though there'll be special episodes, though, right? So they don't count. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. We may have to make one of those a real 100 episode. But <laughs> anyway, but as it relates to actual New York competitors, a couple to talk about. First of all, Ali Kiefer ran a, a prep race this past weekend at Staten Island. She did the Staten Island half, which is a New York Roadrunners race. She ran 110.58 to PR in the half by six minutes in prep for her New York race. That's a, that's, and she got the win there. That's a big result for her. You know, we have to appropriately couch any half marathon times leading up to a marathon that, you know, that isn't necessarily what she could do if she was specifically focusing on a half, but that's a result that would be similar to something you might see from a Des Linden about this time. So solid, solid result for Allie. I think that bodes very well for what her prep is, is looking like coming into New York. And that's not, I mean, the weather I know is ideal because we had one of our team road athletes running it, but, but it's not a pancake flat course. There's some rollers in there, particularly kind of in the, the two thirds point of that race. So, so, you know, that's a solid time as a prep race half marathon what do you think yeah and she uh she, you know based on what we heard which this is you know there's always a little bit of gamesmanship going on with it but i did hear that she did kind of approach it as a workout as well so there wasn't the same kind of um straight up race intent to it so to get a pr consider it a workout get a pr of that magnitude obviously it showed that she had a, a, a lot to gain there um you know her coach is this uh, Brad Hudson, the same coach of Parker Stinson, and he, they're really excited about where she's at right now. And, you know, Chris, I'm I'm a big fan of Allie Kiefer's. I think she's the real deal in terms of – and even more, she's she's somebody who almost every athlete can really get behind because she talks a lot about how you don't have to be a super skinny mini to be able to be a competitive marathoner. And, you know, as, as well as I do, the more we can hear that kind of sentiment – the better off for all of us. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to, to hear from her if we, you know, as we will get to talk to her in the press conferences about how she's approaching this race, how aggressive she's going to be. I mean, I, I think this puts her certainly in the discussion to, you know, to potentially run a two twenty five to two twenty seven in New York, depending on how the race plays out, which might put her in that lead pack initially, depending on how they go out. So anyway, so it's it's gonna make for an interesting discussion around Allie in the mix with the other big Americans with Des and Chelaine and Molly. So we'll get to all of that detail and our predictions for Allie more officially as we have our New York preview podcast. But the other name that we've been meaning to talk about just hadn't got around to it and announced who announced a couple months ago now that he's going to be lining up in New York for his first marathon. His marathon debut is Old Man Lagat, the the American 1500 5K prior specialist who has shown some aptitude with a couple of solid half marathons. And then and then now is finally moving up to the marathon. He says he's going after Meb's Masters record 
which is 212.20 that Meb ran actually in LA at the 2016 trials. So what do you make of that? And what do you think? Can he break the the Masters record here at New York? Um, I, I think he can. I mean, listen, Chris, I'm always bashing Lega- Bernard Lagat and always eating crow every time I bash him. So <laughs> this man, he continues to boggle my mind in terms of what he's able to accomplish and how he's able to um, – how he's been able to extend his career moving up in distance. Um, I do think uh, he has a chance at that, Chris, but I think that as soon as he gets it, it's very light. It could be very likely that Med Kofleski decides to go after it again. So who knows? But um, I, I just don't, I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see, to play how this plays out. It'll be interesting to see the kind of attitude he brings to it. You know, Bernard is always about lay, low key and having fun and enjoying himself. It seems like so. Maybe he, um, you know, maybe maybe he. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I just don't even really know exactly what to say. Except I wish him the best, but I have no idea what's going to happen because the guy always surprises me. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. I mean, at this point, we can't really doubt him. You know, his history is not one of doing big, big miles. So it will be interesting to see how his his training history translates to the marathon. Because having a solid half is one thing, as we've talked about. It's a little easier for somebody who's running some 5Ks and 10Ks to move up to that point. But it's a whole different animal to go up to the marathon. And so it'll be interesting to see how he handles it. I certainly wouldn't put anything past him. But think about it. If this guy runs a 211 or 212 in New York and breaks this record, I mean, is he going to be tempted to line up in Atlanta in 2020? Oh, he maybe. would be stupid not to. I right. mean, I maybe maybe with Meb on the line to see what he can do against some of these young guys who can't seem to compete with the best in the world, at least you know the, the, Af- the best East African runners in the world. So anyway, it's going to be fascinating to see and certainly will create storylines that will extend beyond that depending but depending on how he does and if he decides to go for another olympic games in the marathon <laughs> would be insane so yeah. but you know i also think you can't rule him out for the 10k necessarily either so it'll be interesting to see what he does he, with, with what he does relative to the trials for 2020 but anyway we will give our more official predictions on what we think Lagat can do again on our preview show and with that, now let's bring Mallory in and we'll begin our conversation now on her experience with the Mavitone Method. All right, we are welcoming Mallory Brooks back to the show. As we mentioned in the intro, this is her third time on. Again, check out episodes 16 and 39. Now you're back for 97. Yeah, it's awesome. So good to have you back. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Now... As we talk about this topic today, I wanted to start with just a little bit of history, a little bit of background on Phil Maffetone. Some people know that name because he is one of the godfathers, so to speak, of endurance coaching, certainly in the triathlon world. And so I just wanted to talk about a little bit of his background and then, Mallory, how you kind of came into learning his work. But first, just a bit of context. Phil Maffetone, he is a doctor, PhD in chiropractic and has been a clinician clinician in that world for a very very long time but has also dabbled in lots of things you know he's got 
so he studied kinesiology. He's studied Chinese medicine. I mean, he's he's a guy who clearly has a wealth of curiosities intellectually, and we also now know as his hobbies because he also writes music. Apparently, I just learned that today as I was searching. There's a whole Phil Maffetone music site. I would <laughs> I would caution the audience to go there, but but anyway, fascinating kind of eccentric guy who's who you know, is, you know, has a, has started basically as a chiropractor and, you know, has expanded into lots of different things now has what he calls the math method, M-A-F, that basically captures his view on health and fitness holistically. There's a whole eight step process as, as associated with the math method, but he is well known and maybe primarily known in some circles for his revolution of endurance training, particularly in the triathlon world. Mark Allen, six-time Hawaii Ironman, Kona champion, was coached by Phil Maffetone, has a book for that many triathletes use as a bit of a, a training Bible, so to speak. A couple different versions of that. He's got the endurance handbook as well as training for endurance. And his focus in that training method really is heart rate based training. And so what we're going to talk about today with Mallory is some experience that she's been putting some of his protocols to work to see how it helps her build her aerobic system. And, and that's the thing with him that's most important is sort of building that aerobic foundation. We aren't necessarily heart rate based coaches ourselves at Rogue, but we have similar thoughts about the aerobic system and while he, Phil might not say that miles matter, he would say that minutes matter at an aerobic level effort. And the more you run at that effort, the bigger your foundation, the more you can do in whatever event you're going after. And so his work in the triathlon world, especially with athletes like Mark Allen. And by the way, just a plug for old school like Kona YouTube videos where you watch Mark Allen and Dave Scott go head to head. If you want to go just get down a YouTube rabbit hole. Go watch those two guys slug it out. We just had the Hawaii Ironman this past weekend. So so I was kind of going down a little bit of that rabbit hole myself this past weekend. But those two guys would just slug it out. And Phil Maffetone was a big reason why Mark Allen, who's famous in that world, won six times. So that's a little bit of context. And of course, he's also known for his thoughts on nutrition. And there's a component in his world about limiting carbohydrate intake, trying to become more fat adapted that we'll talk to you, Mallory, about as well. And so those are kind of the two main components we'll get to in terms of his work today. But I highly suggest you go check out his website and just read up on some of his blogs and things like that. There's some really fascinating stuff and we'll kind of get to the tip of it, the tip of the iceberg today. So, turning it to you, Mallory, with that as context, how did you get exposed to Phil Maffetone's work and how did it kind of progress to this point of wanting to try some of his protocols? Yeah. So, I hadn't heard anything about him and I'm just kind of entering this training portion of training where I'm not really, I'm so far away from my goal that I'm, I'm kind of lost as to what I should be doing right now. Should I be working on the track? Should I be going back to base building? 
my goals aren't going to be until next summer. So it's, like, it's kind of this dead period. I thought it would be a good time to experiment with something, try something out that maybe I could give some feedback to our athletes and go through the process myself so that I can give them um, kind of my own story, how it worked for me. And um, again, I hadn't heard of Maffetone yet. So this is all new to me. Um, I'd been working with Dude Spellings on just getting my sleep focused, getting my focus, getting my sleep, getting my diet, getting everything kind of in line. And he suggested that I try doing this. Um, suggested that you do it for about three to six months. He introduced it to me as just a, let's go back to base. Let's just get your heart rate down a little bit. On these easy runs, my heart, rates, my heart rate was being recorded up to 180. And everything was just starting to feel really hard. I was starting to run with a lot of effort. Nothing was feeling easy anymore. So he suggested that I go into this, this maximum aerobic function training and take 180 minus my age to get to this heart rate that I need to be training at. And to start not worrying about mileage, take it down to just worrying about how many minutes you can get out there. And whether it's two runs a day, whether it's a few long runs in a row, it didn't really matter. It was kind of the, the, as simple as you can get. Just run at this heart rate for this long. However you get there is, is how you get there. So it sounded really interesting. And I liked the idea of experimenting on myself. I had the time to do it. Um, my biggest concern initially was that I was going to lose any running partners. I couldn't convince anybody to do this with me. So Devin Kiernan, who is one of our coaches and a good friend of mine who I run with, I kept thinking this is the only time I ever get to run. I get to spend time with him is when we're running. How is he going to take this? That We're going to now have to take our eight minute miles down to nine thirties, tens. I don't even know if I can move that slow and not get hurt or will I stay upright? <laughs> I don't run that pace usually. So I'm starting to think, how am I going to convince him to do it? And he actually sent me a text on the day I was thinking, all right, I'm going to have to break the news to him. And he said, I'm looking into doing Maffetone training. What do you think about it? Mm -hmm. So I thought this is perfect. He's going to, I'm going to get to experiment with someone. Now this gives us like a, a slightly larger sample. He's male. He's older. Um, we have different goals. So it was kind of a, I thought it'd be interesting for both of us to do this together and compare our data. So I kind of had this like research buddy here. Um, so that's how I was introduced to it through Dude Spellings and and now De De uh, Devin Kiernan wanting to uh, go through this process with me. And then you got the book, The Endurance Handbook. Yes. So again, we're talking about the math method, which as you pointed out, stands for maximum aerobic function. Right. Essentially, Maffetone believes you've got to just build a highly functioning aerobic system with a massive aerobic capacity and spend more time in the aerobic development zones than you do in other zones. Yes. And you're, you're kind of starting from the beginning with this program, which it basically says, look, you have to spend a whole bunch of time for a lot of weeks in basically aerobic capacity building heart rate zones, which if you actually use your heart rate in his formula, you can get tested for this, but his formula says 180 minus your age is the maximum heart rate yes. that you should be at yes. in order to be in this aerobic development zone. And so basically the idea is for you're doing it for 15 weeks, yes. right? Yeah. You spend a certain number of minutes moving through space at heart rate levels below that max, that threshold, that yes. 180 minus your age, which is what for you it's about so he has little tweaks so it's not just 180 minus your age he has he, 
I end up adding five because of a history of endurance training and having no injuries. So that brought my heart rate up to 151. So you're using 151 yes. as your max. Yes. Spending how long at that level or below each week? So I only exist at that heart rate. Um, Period. You're not doing anything else. No other strength training, fitness training of any kind where my heart rate is not staying at 150. There's 151. I try to aim for 150 because I tend, I like how Maffedone says, what if he's been asked, you know, what if I do 152? Is that okay? And he says, no. And I say, well, that's ridiculous. But he says, but if I tell you, you can do 152, you're going to do 153. Then you're going to do 154. (laughs) And it's already, it is difficult to keep it that low. If anything, the struggle is to keep it low. And I cannot run up a hill. Um, I cannot open my legs and do this wide stride that I feel when I'm able to hit these eight minute miles. It's just my, everything about the run changes. It almost feels like a different sport because (laughs) it's just, I'm out there longer and I'm not breathing heavy and, but it feels refreshing and I'm able to talk the whole time. And I think one of the indicators that you're, you're maintaining that heart rate is that when you finish, you feel like you could go right back out there and do the exact same thing again with the same amount of ease. And that happens every time, every time I, the only reason I finish a run is because I have somewhere I have to be. I never, I never finish a run because I'm just tired or because I'm just spent. So, and how many, again, how many hours a week are you Sorry. So for the first four weeks, I did six to seven hours a week. However, I could get there. Yep. All at 151. Yes. And then I say, can I ask one question? Can I ask one question? And no, um, he does not indicate how to break that, those hours up. Is that correct? correct? You could run two times a day, every day, if you wanted to, to do it that way. I think it's better to have more frequency. So I started kind of doing two times a day when I could, tried to not, um, tried to not skip days so that I could have more frequency with it rather than just, you know, trying to get seven hours in the weekend. But no, other than that, no, it's not prescribed how you go about getting to that within your week. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Um, And then the next four weeks, the plan was to get up to eight hours final four to five weeks, however many weeks we have left, nine to 10 hours. And again, just looking at the cumulative amount of running that you're running in a week. In terms of hours and you're doing it all below or at or below 151 or is there a minimum? Uh, No, the goal is to be at 151. To be exactly at that level. And and not just to average it, right? Because you you could go to interval training and average 151, but to have as flat of a line as you can on your data. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's hard. And, you know, you started this in the middle of the Texas heat. So True. obviously that affects things. Yes. You said you're, you're training in the, on the hills of Austin, which obviously affect the, affects things. Yes. So are you having to adjust your routes and where no, you I run just, accordingly? Or is it just... I mean, I've stayed away from trail a bit because my heart rate does just get so much higher on trail. Um I've tried to avoid running in the afternoons because the heat here would just make my heart rate skyrocket. And I just couldn't keep it down. I couldn't, I didn't feel like I was, at some points it felt more efficient to just walk. Um, any routes that I would normally do with a hill, I just walk the hill. And I know I get about five strides into any hill and have to break into a walk before it starts to just spike and then I can't get it back down. Um, but so we, yeah, I mean, so the heat, 
we happened to do this when it was so hot. So any anything we record now is going to show that we're getting better and better and better. But we all know that that's happening here at Team Rogue. Everybody <laughs> feels faster and healthier and happier <laughs> as our temperatures are dropping. Um, Mavitone suggests that you start out the cycle with with a test, right? With their math test. And the idea is that you go warm up, um, you run three miles, keeping your heart rate as close to your heart rate goal as you can. And you record the pace for each of those three miles. And he says to expect it to be 15 to 20 seconds slower each mile. Devin and I went to a track to go do it. We just don't have access to a treadmill. I would probably suggest that anybody else doing this goes to a treadmill if you have access to it. You just you can control those variables and then do it. Um, it was 82 degrees outside. It was a hot day. Um, it was the first time we were doing the test. And I ended up hitting, let's see, my paces were 9.03, 9.15, 9.34. So each mile became, it was 15 seconds slower. And Devon's were pretty comparable. Um, six weeks later, we did the test again. And he suggests you do it every four to five weeks. It just happened that we were back running together on that on that day. So we decided to go back to the track, test again. And it was 72 degrees. So 10 degrees cooler. But now the paces are 818, 854, 857. So, you know, 30 seconds faster per mile than the last time I did the test. Devin did some calculation to come up with that that's a 6% improvement after six <laughs> weeks. <laughs> Okay. And I don't, he didn't take into account weather in that right. percentage of improvement. So, you know, it's kind of, I would have told you both mornings were hot. Both mornings yeah, just yeah. felt hot. 72, 82, it's hot. Yeah. But I know it still had an effect. So, but the basic premise is that you're spending 15 weeks of basically for six to 10 hours a week training your aerobic system to improve your capacity and bring your heart rate down at the same paces, essentially, yes. right? Yeah. So that you can run faster with a lower heart rate. Exactly. Over that period of time. Yes. It's, like, it's like an extended base building period. Like we talk about base mileage, but you're doing it base heart rate minutes. Exactly. And it's cool because nothing else, you know, when you're doing the math test, the pace matters. Yes. But when you, during these 10 hours a week that I'm running at 151, my pace doesn't matter. My, you know, perceived exertion level, it's, it's interesting to see what it feels like, but I'm not running at any, I'm not trying to run harder, trying to hit a seven out of 10 or nine out of 10. I'm just constantly watching my watch. And if it goes up to 153, playing that game of pulling it back down. If it goes to 147, trying to see if I can go a little bit faster. Um, I don't have a watch that has an alert on it, but Devin does, and his is constantly buzzing. <laughs> it's just hard to run really smooth and consistent. Yeah. Mallory, do you um, keep track of your perceived effort as a, as a loggable entry, or do you not? Are you just sort of keeping that in mind as you're running along? Yeah, I don't log a number, but I definitely journal, you know, that felt hard or right. um, wow, five sucked. I can't run uphill anymore um, or the heat. I try to I try to talk about whether or not I ate well the night before, if I got enough sleep and I'm noticing and I had seen this before, before I'd really been paying attention to heart rate. But I mean, I've never run looking at my heart rate as closely as I am now and noticing how much of an impact diet the night before a run and sleep and stress have on my heart rate. 
and that the three of those things can be off or one of those three things can be off. I haven't had all three off. I'm sure all three off. I just don't even make it out the door, but one of those off and I, it's 151 is easy to hit, meaning it's just, everything's a struggle. So when you started this and I've talked to others who have done this kind of protocol before the common thread seems to be that it's really difficult to be the patient to be patient enough to go slow enough in order to hit your target heart rate what kind of a difference did you see in your paces shifting to this early and then how hard was that mentally to stay with it yeah so one of the things they warn you about is that this is going to hurt your ego if you're if you're somebody worried about what other people think this is going to hurt you Um, I've always been a back of the packer for team rogue. So I just don't really care. Um, fortunately I run with Devin who really, really doesn't care. (laughs) So he says, right. So you feel you, you say you don't care until, you know, we're, we're running out in his neighborhood and we're running by somebody that knows him. And he's like, you know, I know that this guy is talking about how slow I'm running. And he's like, I just want to yell at him. Like I'm training my heart. I'm not training for speed right now. Um, we were out doing our second math test on the track and I thought like, I never run a a nine minute mile on the track. If I'm ever here, I'm running faster. And, but it's, you know, I'm thinking, I don't care. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. My ego's in check. I'm fine. And I ran by and yelled something at Devin and Gilbert happened to have his entire group there uh, doing push-ups or sit-ups on the side of the track. And he yelled out my name. I remember for a second thinking, I need to explain to them why I'm going so slow. But it's like, <laughs> they don't care. No, I mean, get over yourself, I guess, if that's if that's the issue. Um, I like what Devin's saying. I feel like I'm I'm putting in time to work on building this aerobic capacity. And if it takes 15 weeks, if it takes 25 weeks, and I can eventually go go back to my old paces with a lower heart rate, then I win. Right. And, but, and what were the differences in your paces roughly? Um, let's see, like on a, an easy day, I'd be running 8.15 to 8.45. And now I'm probably about a minute slower. I guess I started out at about, when I, you know, seven weeks ago, no, nothing was faster than a 9.30, 9.45. I was, I mean, I was well into the tens, many, many days. And that's just like an area I hadn't hit. I didn't know that I, I thought I was going to develop all sorts of new injuries because of this new f- form that I felt like I had. And I felt heavy. I felt like, I feel like Steve tells me on the track, like, pick your foot up. You, you root yourself into the ground. And that's what I'm having to do on each of these steps. I like just get comfy with every landing. Um, so th- I felt like mechanics were different. Um, I definitely haven't picked up any new injuries. And I think, Chris, you're the one that has said, like, if you have mechanical problems when you're running slow, I think people are quick to say, I just can't run slow. It hurts me or I get injured. If you have mechanical problems running slow, you have mechanical problems going fast. I'm sure I have mechanical problems, but not enough to, um, to create any kind of injury slowing myself down. So I've been having to get used to about a, a nine. 30 average pace, whereas I used to be around an 8 to 8.30 pace. That's not that slow. but 9.30? Right. Well, right. I mean, I, but I get it. I mean, I, I mean it, sl- there's, there's no slow, only degrees of fast, right? It's all relative. Yeah, I guess you just term, feel but, like I, I don't get 
to like widen my stride. Like my hip doesn't, there's like a whole range of motion. (laughs) My hip isn't hitting and I'm worried they're like cobwebs growing in that area. And like, if I need to run fast, can I, if I, does he address that? So he said that, you know, if you're somebody that says, oh my gosh, am I losing my speed? How can I possibly train slower to get faster? Doesn't make sense in my head. He says, or what I've had some, some people tell me to do is just go out and run a hundred yards, go run a hundred meters, go show yourself that you can still run fast and then be done with it. Just get in your one sprint and call it good. And I've held back from doing that because I'm like, I don't need that. I know I, I've got it. If, if, and when I'm ready to go, I mean, I'm definitely going to, I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. Right. <laughs> so I'm just hoping in, in uh, seven more weeks when I start adding in speed work, it doesn't just feel so foreign. Well, I, I have just keep biting my tongue. I'm about to scream and yell and throw my computer across the Uh-oh. goddamn fucking room. Good or bad? <laughs> Here we go. No, I, I, I understand. So here's the thing. Um, I guess I'll start with sort of giving my basic feedback on it. I hadn't done any research. I know who Phil Maftone is. He's, he's a, he's a legend in the field, right? And anybody that's worked with people who don't know him need to go back. As you said in your intro, Chris, they need to do research. This guy is a badass. But this system is just a simplified system. And um, and I let me give you and so I and I'm not um I'm not a fan of oversimplification generally. And so it's just sort of anathema to my basic coaching nature and probably my personal nature. So I'm just saying that at the outset that there's a little bit of bias here that just goes into um how in the world could you eat fucking white rice or brown rice every day with no change? Because that's what you're doing, right? right. Um, and, and, and if you can do that, so, so here's the thing, there's a lot of things that are benefited from that, but it's simple that, so my first feeling is, Ooh, and I've got some real physiological issues with it, but I'll go into those later, but I do want to give it a, a, a really good, one thing that is really amazing about this method is that so few people will do the kind of base training that they need to do appropriately. And so if you are a person who needs a method or you need a system, this system um, is great for, and, and as you, as Mallory is describing, the system is incredibly good for um, making sure you don't get injured, that you don't overextend yourself, and that you get the true aerobic benefit from easy running. And I think, you know, if people who join Team Rogue, they frequently come into Team Rogue and they think they're going to get faster. And a lot of times they get slower. And the main reason they get slower is because they're working too hard all the time. Because easy running is not easy running. And so I really like that that is, that that is part of this system. But I think there's a lot better way to go about it um, than running for 15 weeks or 24 weeks. And I think if you do this system, if you do a real base building system, and as I think everybody should at some point, I think there's some variability and some other things that can get thrown in. The real challenge with this system is, Mallory, you this system does not work for people who are racing on a consistent basis. Is that not correct? correct. So one thing first of all our listeners need to take into consideration that you can't do this system if you're going to race or run a race because you're really not doing the system Absolutely. and you're cheating yeah. it right? And you're cheating it. So, and for that reason, I think, again, that's another big plus for this program is that it forces people into making a long-term concrete decision about getting aerobic development done. So I'm again, like there's two main points, even though it makes my skin crawl as an idea and a theory, 
I totally get why these, this can make such a huge difference. Um, so I want to, before I, and I'm not going to go, I'll, I'll spend the next hour just talking about this topic and then we'll, neither one of you will get to talk. So I'm going to ask a question now and then we can go from there. Does he bring, um, or, or address, you, know, you said, you know, you feel like your hip flexors aren't doing any work. You have to run on the flattest courses possible in order to keep your heart rate in one specific position. Um, and there's no description here of, um, like spending consent. My, I guess my question here is what do we do with the neuromuscular recruitment and the other neuromuscular pathways? He just says, you're going to go into, I guess maybe my question is what does this system look like after this? Okay. Maybe that's the best way to ask it. So after you get the, the benefits that you want to get from this system, which I think you will, what do you do then? What's next? So I'm, I don't really know what I'm, what, how to incorporate speed back in. I mean, I know right now my focus is just maintain this, make sure I'm hitting, you know, managing, managing all the physical, chemical, emotional stressors that I can right now to keep my heart rate low for these runs. But when it, you know, in seven weeks or in, you know, before that time hits, I'm going to have to figure that out. So I don't actually know what I'm supposed to do to add in the speed work. That's a big question mark on my end as well. And he, ha- I mean, he has protocols for that, right? I mean, it's, right. But it's mostly heart, ba- heart rate based work where you're going to go into different zones. Uh, so I guess what we're saying, Steve, is we don't have the expert here to tell us the answer to that. And Mallory's still figuring it out. Yeah. I'm not a math expert in any way. I'm trying to figure out how this all works right but now. It's possible, right, that you might just go back into Team Rogue sure. and jump into our programming now with ostensibly a a bigger base. Yes. So my plan, you know, if if there were no information on how to go about doing this, my natural way of kind of transitioning back into Team Rogue would be to to add it back, to just kind of go and see how I feel. Could I jump back into those old paces? What would it feel like? You know, if I was, I used to be able to keep up with everybody at a 180 heart rate. Can I keep up with everyone now at a 150 heart rate? And kind of just see what, what if this were just like I cut and paste 15 weeks of this training into where I had been and just see, maybe it doesn't take a transition to come back. I just say, all right, I served my time for these 15 weeks and I come back into training and see how I feel. And if I feel like shit, then I've got to go back to the drawing board and figure out how do I transition smoother back into this? Oh, you're going to feel like shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You've got, you've only worked one neuromuscular, there's no neuromuscular recruitment for in other areas and you're not even running on hills. Well, I am. No, 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 I'm on the hills. But not running them, I am walking them. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, you 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 are you are missing an incredibly wide range of neuromuscular patterns that you have been used to using. Yes. So there will be shaking the dust off for sure. Now I don't think it's something that somebody should not do this training for, right? I mean, I'm I, I I'm, I'm telling you, I, I think there's a lot better way to do this plan. But I completely get this plan because I think not enough people do what Mathetone is talking about here. And honestly, having been your coach in the past, Mallory, I see this as hugely beneficial for you because I think that there has been a tendency in your part. This is, you know, a little bit of 
talking about talking out of out of school, right? As your coach, mm-hmm. but you're here, so <laughs> answering questions. So now you're public, right? right? You're you're uh, um, you really can ben- you really don't didn't have the aerobic development to run with the people you were running with. For sure, you were. Yes below their their level in terms of aerobic development you had the speed skills and the strength skills and lord knows you had the mental toughness because that's one of your best attributes right but you didn't have you were an aerobic baby as we talk about and so this was a fantastic way for you to get much more aerobic development and with your long-term goals this is right up your alley um what i think is there are so many other ways that you could do the same thing and not have what I think you're going to have with this transition. But I might be wrong about how you transition with this, but I think that you're also missing a few other pieces of the puzzle that would be beneficial and that could be very helpful um, to making this kind of base training much more effective. But that said, all the things that I might suggest will definitely take you out of that 151 heart rate and then do you just get greedy like almost everybody does and then they don't go back to doing 151 heart rate stuff and they can't go back there because they've gotten greedy. Does that make Absolutely. sense? They've tasted the sweet nectar exactly. of speed and can't. can't That's exactly back. right. But I want, so let's debate this for a second because I, I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate, Steve, which is that you know we talk all the time on this podcast about aerobic development, miles matter, running easy, you know, when you should run easy, learning to control and manage your efforts in the right ways, all these things that are in line with Maffetone principles for the most part. And I think there's a population out there that has no idea about how to build base appropriately, how to build time on their feet appropriately, how to manage their efforts appropriately without being greedy, without sort of pushing the envelope too much or thinking they're going slow enough when they really aren't. And so while 15 weeks is a long time, or at least might seem like a long time, it's a short period of time in the context of most people's aerobic development if they're thinking about long-term goals and might be a way if people need a system to really reset on what it should feel like when you're uneasy. And and one thing I kind of picked up on what you said, Molly, was that, hey, I don't feel beat up after any of these runs now. It's like, I feel amazing. I feel like I can keep going. And that's how you should feel. Of course you don't. You didn't do anything. <laughs> but that's how you should feel on an easy run, yeah. you know? Like No. I <laughs> No. <laughs> nice. Here we go. No, no it is though, Steve. No. Like you should finish an easy run feeling like you could have gone farther. Yes. You should finish an easy run feeling good. <laughs> because you felt like shit before it because you did real work before it that you need to recover from. But anyway, I'll <laughs> I'll stop there. But But anyway, my point there being is that some people need something like this, a system, a method to get them to one, really take the time to build base that they need to, two, do it at an aerobic effort level that's actually building aerobic foundation versus something else. And three, you know, stay healthy along the way, right? So I while I get you're saying 
you know, well, it's okay. Phil has some ideas that might make sense, but there's better way. You know, why isn't that alone enough for some people who might be listening to us who don't have our direct coaching advice or, or, or purview? Steve, you could go, sure. One-on-one, you could come up with a magical training plan that would help somebody achieve this in fewer weeks or with a totally different approach. But I guess my, I see Maffetone more as like this nicely packaged thing that is accessible for everybody. And he's tried to create this math equation that works for everyone. And it's really kind of this, Hey, if you don't have a coach one-on-one, if you don't have Maffetone on speed dial, here's how you can do it. And it's just pretty black and white. I don't, even doing it now, think that it's necessarily the best way to go about things, but I've committed to doing it. And I've kind of been known for taking on weird diets when other, when my athletes have said, Hey, this is something I might want to do. I'm like, well, let me go and just see how this works. And then I can fill you in with how I would edit it or change it up. Um, so there are definitely, I don't want to say cracks necessarily in the system, but definitely areas that could be strengthened um, this may be just the best option that's prepackaged out there. Oh, okay, how Chris, we need to make a a better prepackaged ver- prepackaged version. But <laughs> I, I, do I do want to come back to this point and make sure that I reiterate that I do know this for a fact, and this is making your point. I do agree with you, Chris and Mallory. Yes, as a method to get people to slow down and to take seriously. Getting in an aerobic development zone, which most people are not in, um, because they get rolled into with team training or group training or even running with just one other partner who's fitter than they are, they are not getting all the benefits from aerobic development. Um, And, you know, I do believe that people would improve greatly, even in Team Rogue, if we did an extended base building phase. But I would add things to this phase that are not included because it's just flat out wrongheaded to not do the things that you could do so that you don't have to go through the transition that I think Mallory is going to have to do. So I'm very – maybe we're a little premature with this and Mallory will come back and say, guys, I got back right into training. I felt like a million bucks. Well, I think you're going to feel like a million bucks because your base phase got you way further down the road, right? You're going to feel that way no matter what. And you'll probably have a two to three week phase where your body starts to be challenged. Um, but I do think that you could do a couple of things to this plan to, to make it work. One thing is I would suggest that after one of those days a week, people just do strides with a walk back. Now that would that would go against Maffetone's staying out of your heart rate because your heart rate's going to go up for sure with that. But if you think about what you're doing, if you set aside a special time after one run a week to do four to six strides, preferably barefoot, so you got all that neuromuscular recruitment from what's going through those phases, how in the world will that negatively affect a Maffetone method? Or, or what, how would that negatively affect the aerobic development phase? Because you're only going for, you know, 75 meters and then shutting it down and walking back. Like right away, I can tell you, I cannot sign off on this program because there's no strides. Right. And that, that's, that's just a, that's just a no, like that from the beginning, I am like, no. And the other thing is hills are so good for you. And I don't know how changing 
And a little bit of heart rate fluctuation seems to me to be worth the benefit that that would happen, assuming the athlete had the ability and the discipline to drop back once they reach the top of that hill to back into the 151 heart rate zone that you're talking about. So right off the bat, those are two adjustments that I would suggest that I think that if an athlete did this system and added those two things, they're going to come out of this in a really good place. Now, let me give you another thing that I think is absolutely fantastic about this. People are running for 10 hours a week. Bam. Fucking genius. That's genius. And they're not hurt. Right. right? So yes, I a hundred percent agree that a base phase is phenomenal and necessary and so valuable. I just wish there was a little more nuance to this that would allow someone to not have the, the, what I think is going to be the inevitable transitionary blues that Mallory's going to go through. Well, and you know, we just did it a series, Steve, I'll remind you on what does the race require? A big part of that we talked about was having year round efficiency work where you're working on economy, where you're working on neuromuscular recruitment. So we obviously believe that that's important. Strides being the very basic version of doing that. But we talk about other workouts in that series that can get you there. So I agree with you. I also wonder if, you know, that's a little bit more of a modern view on kind of base building, right? I mean, when Maffetone was developing his system, it was what, 70s, 80s, basically, when there was a little bit more standard periodization model at play where you had this sort of dedicated base. And now we've sort of realized that, hey, you, know, you, you, you have to have a base, you know, phase to get the right foundation for your program, but you also can't neglect that year round speed development kind of work. So maybe what you're talking about, Steve, is just modern mafetone of sorts. Right. Well, and, and Mallory, I do think that, um, the real, one of the reasons why this is so valuable for someone like you is that you're in a, um, you're in a space where you're constantly working too hard, you know, yeah. at, at, when, when you're in team yes. rogue because of the nature of that program, um, is aggressive and, um, you know, everybody, they, people want to stay with the people that they run with. And so I think that taking some time, I, I do taking some time to implement this for you and for any other listener that's out there phases, I would say every 12 to 18 months in which you took a three to, you know, three month to even six month window of this kind of work would be incredibly valuable. But I think one of the things, you know, I got onto this site after you guys sent me this, I was on a plane this morning and I got to do a little homework and uh, on this method. And and one of the things that I think that Maffetone or at least Maffetone acolytes press and talk about all the time is being injury free, you know? And um, I'll tell you that 
a lot of the reasons why people aren't injury free is because they're pressing way too hard, even when they're doing their 5k and 10k pace work, because they're not doing things done at appropriate paces in the first place, because they're running in a group or they're comparing themselves to other people, or they're worried about their Strava check or all the other bullshit things that happen with people because we're a society of competitive people. So just the time frame of taking a break, the things Mathetone is talking about are genius and essential with just a few little tweaks. And so I don't want anybody to t- sit here and think that I'm just dismantling a system when I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely sympathetic to this viewpoint as long as um, there is a, a real purpose behind it and people know what they're doing. You know, you, Mallory, you obviously know what you're doing. As you said, I've got six months. I've got at least a three-month window to play with something. Let's try this. Genius. I think that's a great idea. I just think you could add a few other things. But as you said, as I agree, it would be hard for you to do that in a group environment. The other thing that Maffetone talks about is that for those that might be injured or who have struggled with injury in the past, this could be a good way to reset if they're coming back from injury. We did a heart rate-based group with Ruth back, gosh, probably six or seven years ago that was specifically geared towards people that struggled with injury or just had plateaued and, and didn't have or couldn't see the next breakthrough for them. Yes. And she did a similar block with them that ultimately progressed to other elements as well. And a lot of people had really good success if they were able to stay with it and be patient enough. Yeah, right. One question for you, just as we drill into this before we kind of talk about some of the other components, you mentioned that you couldn't imagine doing this for as long as you had to do it. At least when you started, it was hard to imagine just running consistently at the same, basically heart rate for that many hours a week. Is it boring? And how do you manage the boredom factor? The first few weeks were, it was just, you didn't get that rush that you feel when you were running fast and, I don't know if I have fewer endorphins going into my head now because I never really hit that quick stride and I don't feel like I'm chasing green lights when I'm running through downtown Austin. And I mean, I can't, my heart rate will get too high. So I see a, a light going yellow and I just give up. <laughs> no hope. Um, but it's become fun. I think it's, I feel a little bit like a lab rat. So I'm, although the first couple of weeks were rough, I'm, I've committed to doing it for 15 weeks. Um, I can't believe I'm only on week seven. It does feel like it's been a long time. Um, I am noticing more things in my neighborhood. I notice more (laughs) as I'm running by. Um, But no, it's not. It's not boring. It's I got over that pretty quickly. And you do have a training buddy. You have a training buddy of sorts. You're You're doing it with not always, but sometimes with a very interesting character of a guy who is. (laughs) Kieran in our resident trail yeah badass and secret service agent so he's got all kinds of good stories sorts of stories (laughs) so i mean i i feel like because i'm running i'm spending more time running now i have tried to line up people to run with um i just had chris kimbrough come to my neighborhood one of the fastest 50 year olds (laughs) maybe in the world um and she shows up on my door and i said you know we're we're going to run slow though. I told you we're running slow. And she was like, yeah, 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 no problem. No big deal. And she would start talking and she'd just get two strides in front of me, four strides in front of me. And she was like, I didn't know you meant this slow. (laughs) (laughs) I told you. She was like, I mean, should I, I could just walk next to you. (laughs) 
So if you line up the right people to do it, you, you just have a, I mean, if, if I can serve my time or however you want to call this 15 weeks, if I can just get through this and in the end come out with a lower heart rate and keep up with the people I used to be chasing after, um, then again, it's all been super worth it. And I feel really glad that I stuck with it. Well, and I think you will. I mean, I don't think that there's any way that you won't have those things happen. You've already seen, you know, as you said, your current selection in terms of knowing how much you've changed is adjusted a little bit for weather. But I don't think that 10 degrees is all that much of a difference, honestly. And I think you're seeing significant changes in that. And you will with this because basically miles matter. I mean, aerobic development done in an easy way is the only way to um, is to get the aerobic development that needs to happen. This is the reason why running 20 milers or 24 milers, and people hear me talk about that, I'm like always like, what's the easiest thing to do to make myself faster? Run longer. One of the reasons I say that is because it means that people can't run as fast as they would normally run because they're running longer. And so I, I agree with the basic premise of this 100%, and I know for a fact that aerobic development is king. It will, the long run is king. It will always pay off and running 10 hours a week, every week at an easy rate will benefit you. So you're going to definitely see huge improvements, Mallory, I think. And, and you might, and ways that you wouldn't have gotten them otherwise, cause you would have been, I mean, you would have been burning yourself right. out. Yeah. You know, what's your longest session a week now? Uh, my longest run Yeah. <laughs> in terms of time, yep. uh, two hours. Okay. Yeah. So not bad. Yeah. And one of the things that I find really fascinating, if you if you dig through the blogs on Phil Maffetone's site, which is philmaffetone.com, it's, there's some really interesting stuff in there. One of the things that I've found and latched onto as I describe warming up and cooling down to my athletes is Phil Maffetone is really big on this idea that if you're warming up, you need to do it properly and that you're not skipping heart rate zones, that you start at your resting heart rate and that you gradually increase that heart rate until you get to whatever zone you're supposed to be in. He wants you to hit every beat per yes. minute spot with, you know, between your resting heart rate and your math heart rate. And then of course, you know, as you get into more sophisticated training with him, he wants you to kind of progress gradually all the way through the spectrum and not make jumps from one zone to another. And he talks about how that's important in your ability to sustain those heart rates that you're getting to if you do the warm-ups properly. And then the cool-down properly, you're supposed to kind of slowly go back down to your resting heart rate. And if you do that gradually, then you'll see better recovery benefits on the back end. So that concept for me has become a way I describe to people to get them to slow down during their warm-ups because a lot of people go from zero to 60 you know, yes. too fast and then end up struggling in the workout as a result. So what have you found on that dimension as you build into a run and come off of a run? Yeah. So um, in the beginning, when we just thought, you know, you're supposed to be at 151 the entire time, Devin and I would just like launch off the block because we were trying to get our heart rate to 151 as quickly as right we can. Yeah. So we could count that minute of running towards our grand eight hours or whatever we were aiming for. Um, and then we're quickly corrected by some people that know much more than us that this, just what you said, that we need to basically just, we should be able to see our heart rate just hit every single beat on the way up. So if you're, if you know that your fastest pace is going to be a 930 today and you have to warm up to that, but that used to be slower than your warm up pace. It's starting to kind of reset 
how I'm thinking a warm up should be. And, you know, with the group runs, we tend to all just get excited and take off the block and fire off the fire out of the speed shop. Um, yeah. I mean, you basically walk, you're, you're jogging like you're jogging with your mom. I mean, I don't know how fast your mom is, but imagine your mom was like, you know what? I want to go for a run. How slow can you move forward and still make it look like the mechanics of what you're doing is running? Um, and then same thing for when we, when we finish, we end up typically walking the last quarter mile just to cool down, just to hit those 120s, 110s heart rates. Yep. How does that make you feel? Do you feel the difference when you do it that way? When you kind of gradually build versus just seems easier to sustain it. Yeah. Um, when we weren't doing that, it seemed that our heart rate would just kind of jump and it was a little harder to catch. Um, when you've done this long warm up, you can see it creep up, right? So if we start up a hill and then my heart rate hits 152, I know to slow it back down. When we had just shot off the block and tried to get to 151 as quickly as we could, um, my heart rate going up a hill may quickly jump to 160 and then it's much harder to bring back down. So let that be a lesson for all in terms of the warm up and the cool down. It yeah. is important how gradually you build that heart rate up. Yes. Now, Phil Maffetone, he has eight steps in his math method. We won't talk about all of them, but I will just name them quickly so people have the context. But he's got step one is carbohydrates. Step two is inflammation. Step three is vitamin D. Step four is folate. Step five is the aerobic system, which we've been talking about. Step six is stress. Step seven is brain. Step eight is aging. You have to really kind of read through his stuff to understand how all of those things fit together. But obviously with carbohydrates in there, vitamin D, folate, diet is an element that he talks about. And you know he's big on this idea of becoming a better fat burning engine. We're you know, limiting your carbs, certainly limiting your simple sugars. You're incorporating some of that into this programming. So how does that fit in? Yeah. So it must have been a couple of years ago, Jason and I decided to try out intermittent fasting. So that was kind of the first time I started working towards what eventually would help me to be on kind of what Maffetone tells you you should be doing for this kind of training. Um, and basically, Jason and I would just go to an eight hours of eating. Um a day. And then outside of that eight hour window, we weren't eating about 10 AM to 6 PM ish. Um, and so I got used to not ever needing breakfast, which helps when you're trying to become fat adaptive because all of my runs were in the morning. So I was running off of an empty stomach. I didn't need, feel like I needed to fuel during the runs. And even hours afterwards, I didn't feel hungry. So I could wake up, run with team rogue at five 30, run 10 miles, uh, train a couple athletes, and then I'd start to get hungry around 11 or noon. I could drink one of these bulletproof coffees, fat fuel coffees, and then feel fine until 3 or 4 p.m. So I could go without any food food and for a large chunk of the day. Um, about a year ago, Jason and I went to UT and went to uh, another Dr. Phil to go get our VO2 test done. And he could test how we were fat burners. And Basically, from the moment he turned on the machine, we were immediately fat burning, which just showed that we had become fat adaptive. That took, I think, starting with intermittent fasting, that was kind of the baby step because it didn't really tell you what to, with intermittent fasting, it doesn't really tell you what to eat. It just says, don't eat outside of this window. It's pretty black and white. That's pretty easy to follow. 
Then I started getting into, okay, what if we could get into ketosis? And Jason and I experimented with that, um, with success. It, I'm vegetarian, so it was a little bit of a struggle to try to eat. I would eat like a bite of bacon and just be done. I couldn't, it, I tried to add it back in. I'm still working on that. Um, but I got to work, so I was still working with Dude Spellings trying to get me into this fat-adapted state. I had access to, um, fortunately, one of my good friends married Zach Bitter, who is one of the most knowledgeable fat-adapted athletes who happens to own the 100-mile American record. And I would text her and say, what does Zach say about doing this? What am I supposed to do about this? Because although it's easy to find out information about how to get into ketosis, how to become fat-adaptive, there's not a ton of information on how that applies to an endurance athlete. When do I add the carbohydrates back in? Do I? Do I fuel with them during my run? Are they, should I? Carbohydrates are so vilified in this fat adaptive training. How am I supposed to add them back in? So I'm just constantly pinging her with questions. How do, when do I, what can I eat? What kind of carbohydrate? During the race, before the race? How does this all work? There's no book out there telling me as an endurance athlete how to eat. And he helped me to kind of understand you should have these three phases, right? You have this this base, you have building, and then you have race. And if you just look at your nutritional intake as a pie chart, look at your carbohydrate intake and, you know, maybe during your base, it's 10% of your calories are coming from fat. I'm sorry, excuse me, from carbohydrates. Um, During your building, maybe it's 15 to 20. During your race, now you're going up to 25 to 30%. And he, I have this quote from him that kind of helps you understand his view, because it's it's helpful to see how carbohydrates aren't shouldn't be vilified, and should instead be used as this like as, as this high octane fuel of sorts. So he says, I view carbohydrates as a tool, not a demonized food group. When I'm not targeting variables with massive amounts of energy demand, I don't require as much of this high octane fuel source. So by not being regular, not not regularly eating these carbohydrates, when I was using them in a race. I got more energy out of them, right? It's almost like, it's like caffeine. Like when used in small quantities, it can give you a perk. When abused, you can just get the shakes. You can feel sick. Um, So a lot of what, you know, although I haven't hit all the eight steps of Maffetone's training, um, I'm trying to mostly do his, you know, his heart rate training and his carbohydrate guidelines, um, but again, it's a lot of his guidelines are for somebody who's ill or injured or overtrained. And I'm not any of those. I'm somebody that's trying to be a fat burner. I'm trying to, you know, we're, we all walk around with enough fat on us to walk 600 miles, you know, our fetal will give out before our body will run out of fuel. So I'm thinking if I can train my body to go towards the fat for fuel, rather than having to carry all this extra food. I could take, you know, if, if in a 93-mile run, mm-hmm. I were to not have to carry half as much food as I carried the last time we did it, that's a massive difference. We're talking about like 10 pounds of food. If I could just carry five pounds, if instead I could have my body going towards fat as fuel, not needing to take in as many carbohydrates, then it just seems like a win-win. So how does that fit with this? What are the guidelines you're following? How are you working that in? Yeah, so pretty much the same. I I keep a I track my calories. I keep a macro going so I know that what my macronutrients are. And I mostly just focus on getting 
on keeping my carbohydrates low and my fats high. So my fat percentage, my calories come from fat are 60%. That's a lot of oil and butter and nuts, nuts, um, some avocado though. I'm learning a lot of things have carbs in them that I didn't really think of as carb <laughs> carriers. Um, it's mostly a, just a lot of this bulletproof coffee, kind of butter coffee and a lot of oils in everything that, that, um, that I'm eating. And broccoli is a carrier for more coconut oil, avocado oil. Um, yeah. Yeah. And your carb percentage is what? Uh, carb percentage is again is about what it's what Zach it's Zach's guidelines. So about ten percent when you're in this base building. So try to be ten fifteen right now. Yeah. Fifteen to twenty during a base building, or sorry during uh, your building phase, and twenty five thirty during race phase, race week. Which is even twenty five thirty is low for low. most American diets. Right. You know I'm, I probably when I track. I have her kind of in the 50 to 60% range for Easily. carbs. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, still maybe lower than some American diets. So yeah. if someone wanted to experiment with that, obviously in some ways you're playing with fire because you can have pretty rapid changes in mood and energy levels and things like that. What would you recommend them do to kind of put their toe in the water? Yeah. So I'd, I'd suggest starting with this intermittent fasting, whatever it is to you, however long that window of not eating and window of eating is that fits with your lifestyle. But I've seen huge benefits in staving off any kind of bonk by not eating breakfast, by not necessarily fueling with food during a run. Um, I've started drinking the Human Nutrition um, Project's electrolyte drink and that just keeps my energy level low without having to have any kind of food during the run. So I'd suggest that they start off by just not eating breakfast, start running on an empty stomach, train their body to not have that carbohydrate as a readily available fuel and instead to need to tap into their fat for fuel. Um, whether or not they need to go into ketosis or not is, is it's a bit extreme. I think a lot of people get a little scared away by how intense that is. A lot of people get this keto flu and if you're going to be out three days with flu-like symptoms, it's hard to think that what you're doing is good for you. You know, we have many runners that if they're out three days of running, that's it's already destroyed their training plan. Yep. So you've got to just start tracking calories, experiment with running on an empty stomach, adding enough fats to get your fat intake up to about 60% of where your calories are coming from, and just eliminate any obvious carbohydrate. I mean, so many things have a carb in them, but eliminate anything that you would point out and say, that is more a carrier of carbohydrates than it is a fat and protein. And Maffetone describes, I thought this is an interesting way to describe. Basically, if you eat junk food, you've now just pushed out room for high quality foods. And he said, you know, if, if people come to me and they say, I have these aches and pains, and he says, well, what's your diet? And they have junk food in there. He says, you clearly don't have the will to, to be great and to work on this. Like, <laughs> it really is pretty harsh. And it, but it's so true that we have people come to us and say, I just want to be faster. Well, are you putting in the effort outside of training? Are you avoiding junk food and alcohol and getting enough sleep? And if they're not, then why waste our time coaching people like that who aren't at least willing to make this, you know, an all-encompassing effort. Everything they do during the day should be about this. If, if it, they are as committed and dedicated as they tell us as their coaches, they are. 
Does that leave room for moderation? <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's, you know, mostly talking about people who have like inflammation. You get inflammation from right. chronically losing sleep or eating junk food and and craving that kind of stuff. And then the joint gets inflamed and we see injuries. It's like, it's pretty predictable. What have you got, Steve, on this topic? I, I plead the fifth. <laughs> I, 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 not really. I will just say this. I'm, uh, as I've said on this podcast a few times, I've started running myself and been getting some long runs in, and I don't take any fuel at all. I drink water and water only, no electrolyte fluids, water and water only. And part of that's because I'm a old school dude, right? I'm an old school run bum, run bum, but I'm also 100% believe that so many people are taking way unnecessary steps when it comes to fueling and they're fueling with too much too often. And so, and your body needs to learn how to be fat adapted. I, I don't agree with changing your diet significantly unless you eat a whole bunch of shit. Um, I just think Raw fruits and vegetables as much as you can. Hunt, fish, pick. If you can't hunt for it or fish it or pick it, then you don't need to put it in your body. And we'll all cheat, right? We always cheat. But I eat Reese's Pieces like they're going out of style sometimes when I can't help myself. But I also know that's not the best choice I make. One thing I do think that's really interesting here, though, is, is that it is important, though, that if people are hearing us, that if you're running a marathon or an ultra marathon, you do need to take fuel in. So you, what we're saying is I'm, there's going to be a period of time if I'm going to run a race of a marathon or distance or longer where I'm going to have to take in fuel and learn how to take it and make sure that my body can handle it. So I just don't want anybody running off and saying, oh, Steve said don't ever take any fuel at all. That's not true. It, we, you just want to limit that as much as possible. You know, when I first we first started Rogue, Chris, I think, you know, after about four or five years, I, I remember being out on a Saturday long run helping our athletes um, at a water stop and the amount of Gatorade that was consumed, I remember coming back and saying, well, between the Gatorade consumed and the amount of electrolyte gels and amount of gels taken, everybody gained weight right. on this run. It was a 20 mile run. People gained weight because they're taking too much fuel. And, uh, uh you know, whether you want to right, say that I'm a run, I'm a old school run bum, or you want to say that I am, uh, um, I'm, I'm utilizing modern training techniques. I don't really give a shit, but I think it's, I think there's some part to these things that are really important, but I think we can spend a lot of time and energy working on minutia instead of working hard and doing the work that needs to be done. Not that I'm saying that Mallory's doing that. I think Mallory's interests fall so much in the context of what can she do as a coach to make every athlete that she works with better. And she has this amazing ability to use her own body as a, as a way to test that. And I think that's fantastic. So I'm not denigrating Mallory or any other person that's doing that. I just think, there's a whole lot more – there's a whole lot of time spent talking and thinking about these things than necessarily needs to be done. It's pretty simple stuff in yes. my opinion, which I think you probably would agree yeah. with, right, Mallory? I, I mean, I also think the ultimate goals are important to talk about too. I mean, you're training for big ultra events, right? And so the idea is that you're going to be going low effort for long periods of time those are where your big goals lie right. and fat adaptation in that kind of world is, is paramount when you're running as hard as you can for three, four five hours over 26.2 miles. 
it's a little bit of a different equation. And Alex talks about it in his, in his book, Endure. When you start going into that edge where you're kind of trying to run that, that, that gauntlet of a marathon and kind of stay on that edge as long as you can, naturally your body's looking for carbs to stay in that zone better. And so fueling yourself appropriately given the systems you're working yes. is also important. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm glad you pointed that out, Steve, because we, we do say, okay, we're not eating. Look at us just running on water. It is important for our athletes to be eating food while they're training, because if you're not doing that in training, then when you get out to your race, your body's going to think, not know what this foreign object is that you're putting into it and asking it to turn it into fuel. Um, for something five, six hours of effort or much, much longer, we're not even bothering with gels. We're going full peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, it's full food. So, oh. you know, we're training, trying to eat food like that. Um, with this kind of training, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing any kind of race simulation training right now. And that's because I know I'm so far out from my goal date of the race that I don't need to be doing that. So when I start to incorporate more, when I get closer to the actual performance date, I'll start incorporating in more foods like that so that my body understands how to take that food and turn it into this high octane fuel. And of course, consult your doctor before changing your diet. This is true. <laughs> We've got to give the <laughs> disclaimer. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and again, everybody's going to react a little bit differently. Something, you know, so it's, these are just concepts, examples we're giving that Mallory's playing with that people may want to play with if this is something that sparks their interest, but it's not something you have to deal with. I do think your point about just eliminating junk food, getting good sleep, at least doing the basics is important. Not that you can't have Reese's Pieces on occasion, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, it all fits together for this goal of yours to become an aerobic monster. Mm -hmm. Is your resting heart rate dropping while you're doing this? It is. Yeah. So, I'm, so I've been how has that it. changed? Um, right now, it's only like three or four beats a minute. But on average, I mean, it seems I was I was closer to 57, 58. And I thought, ah, a little hummingbird heart beats frequently. <laughs> Um, and I've dropped down to about 53, 54 when I wake yeah. up first thing in the morning, I'm going to start testing heart rate variants, try to get a little more info there and see what's happening. Um, but overall, yes, it's dropped my resting heart rate by about three or four beats a minute. Which is a big deal. Yeah. Sign. And maybe that's training. Maybe that's some of it's, I mean, I'm trying to focus on being less stressed though. That's hard. Um, on getting more sleep. I just found out my kids sleepwalk. So it's like, you know, there are things that affect, you know, you can have the perfectly laid plan and then wrenches are always thrown in it. But I think in general, I'm just paying more attention to those stressors. All of that is training, right. you know, um, and I have to tell you, four to five beats from a resting heart rate is a is a big number. That is very, very um, positive. That's a that's that's a really positive training effect that you're seeing there. So there you go. Anything else we're missing, Mallory, that you think the audience would be curious to know before we wrap it up? Um, I mean, I, there was, I guess, one more thing. So when I'm thinking about, you know, what what is this that I'm doing? What What is my aerobic base? And I always like, Jason calls me like queen of bad analogies, but I like to think of this as like, we're working on the soil and there's nothing really sexy about working on your garden's soil. There's really nothing sexy about running slow for long periods of time. 
But if I can get the soil and the pH balance and everything just right, when I'm ready to sow the seeds, it's hopefully going to reap this harvest. So I just keep thinking like that analogy. I'm just working on my heart. I'm working on my soil and we'll see what happens in seven weeks. That's not a bad analogy. That's no? a good analogy. Good. Because <laughs> soil is not sexy, but not from sexy. what I understand, I'm not a gardener, but from what I understand, it's all about the soil. Okay. And in fact, you can't have a harvest until you get the soil right in many cases. So right. I love it. Cool. So there you go. We'll wrap it with that. Thanks for sharing. We'll have to ch- have you check back in with us when you get fully done with the cycle. And as we evolve into some of the transitionary work like Steve was talking about to see if he is in fact right about that transition. <laughs> we'll see. But thanks for joining us. She'll tell me I'm wrong anyway. <laughs> I'll hide it anyways. <laughs> of course. But thanks for listening and or thanks for joining us and thanks to those listening. If you want to learn more about Phil Maffetone, check out his website, philmaffetone.com or one of his books, Training for Endurance, The Mathetone Method, Endurance Handbook, any of those three will touch on this kind of training that we're talking about. And if you do think you need to have a real rigorous base building period to either get back from an injury or just actually learn what that means for the first time, I would consider it. So there you go. This has been episode 97 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or the Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.